KBCS is powered by listeners just like you. Support this and other KBCS stories, interviews, and highlights by donating at our website, kbcs.fm. KBCS HD1 Bellevue, Seattle, Tacoma, a broadcast service of Bellevue College since 1973. I'm Yuko Kodama. Next, what do you do when you feel you've been harmed or feel unsafe in relationships at work, at school, or in the home? Bellevue College hosts a restorative practices program that works to encourage more connection and better response outcomes after harm from power and team dynamics and oppression on campus. The college's Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion houses the campus-wide restorative practices program, hosting 20 faculty and staff who are trained as restorative facilitators. Next is a conversation with the restorative practices director, Michelle Strange. I wanted to hear a little bit more about what restorative practices are and how you, you know, work with it. So first of all, thank you for having me. When I am thinking about what does restorative practices mean to me, I'm thinking about a framework and approach to prevent and repair harm. So it's the proactive and the responsive measures. And that can look like a lot of different things. It's really about a framework and approach around connection and authentic community building. That's the proactive piece, right? The proactive measures really facilitate the effectiveness of the responsive measures. So a lot of times people will want me to come in and like fix this issue. And I'm like, they don't even know who I am. (laughs) Or like, they don't know who you are. Um, How can we build some connections so that we know what we are restoring? What are we coming back to? Like, we can't necessarily restore something that's never been there. So the community building piece is important. So the proactive work that I do There's a couple examples. Now, I keep saying circles, so I'm going to start with restorative circles because that's probably what people might default to think when they uh, are talking about restorative practices or even restorative justice. So picture a circle, a circle of chairs, no tables because barriers, right? It's people that are consenting to come to the table, that is actually not a table. (laughs) They're consenting to come to the circle, right? So we got a circle of chairs and we have a centerpiece. Now you might picture a beautiful cloth in the center and there's some talking pieces or other grounding elements in there. Now the centerpiece is helpful as a focal point because sometimes when we're building these authentic connections, we might not want to be looking at each other in the eyes or sometimes our eyes drift off and we're, you know, um, sometimes it's a cultural thing, right? But I like to have something beautiful in the center for us to like glance on if we need it. It's a grounding element. Next to that, I mentioned talking pieces. We have a piece that we go around in a circle. Now, the talking piece uh, can represent something that's related to the topic. If I'm doing, let's say, a community building circle, I might bring a small piece that really reminds me of community or a reflection of my community or a reflection of the greater Seattle community. Uh, So I might talk about what that means to me. 
and then I get to pass it around. The role of the talking piece is if I'm holding it, it's my space to uh, share. And that's where I can build that authentic connection, speak truth to power, say things that I might not have felt comfortable otherwise. And everybody has an opportunity to do that. But you always have the opportunity to pass as well. When I'm not holding the talking piece, that's my space to listen, to witness, to affirm non-verbally, to show up for the rest of the people in the circle. Uh, So a restorative circle works in that way where it's a redistribution of power where everyone has an equitable amount of space to show up, to contribute, to share, to process. And we explore different topics and the topics are based on needs. So it's a lot of community building, um, a lot of some authentic connections. So we got circles. Now let's talk about the restorative drop-in hours. So I love this. I offer restorative drop-in hours once a quarter at the beginning of each quarter. And this is really a space for people to come together and kick it. It's a kickback where this is a space where we can build community together. Also, pick up some restorative resources. I have some infographics. I have the calendar of events each each quarter. And I mentioned it's like a kickback. So you might imagine like it's set up like a cafe style, you know, with different tables at different spaces for small groups to connect. And then I have different fidgets around some games, some dim lighting, lo-fi music, yoga mats. So it's really a space for people to just relax and decompress. The last drop-in hours, we just did a casual, like impromptu yoga session because someone said, oh, I feel sore and stiff. Because I was like, How, how's it going? What's up? And they're like, oh, I'm sore and stiff. I'm like, well, I could... I could lead a, a just an impromptu session. Let's just stretch it out. And then more people joined and it, it was really it was really cool. So I think stuff like that, that kind of connection really is helpful on our campus specifically where we feel siloed and disconnected. But I think the world needs more of that. So much of the work that I do is really about naming things that may have been unsaid or it might be hard to say or Dominant culture doesn't necessarily uplift this way of thinking, but this is where I'm at, right? Dominant culture says, next meeting, next meeting, let's go, let's go. But I'm asking us, let's take a pause and sit with what's happening here. And that happens, you know, with some somatic tools, as well as with some some just verbal processing and naming things that might be difficult to say, speaking beyond the surface naming things for what they are and then that impact on yourself as you're feeling feeling tight in the in the throat or whatever mm-hmm. it is right and then you're in an institution where dominant culture is the norm and the fact that Bellevue College then has this space where it's honoring this kind of practices is one thing in itself, right? What happens sometimes when, so there's this fear of like naming something, right? Mm. Because you're in an institution, you're supposed to be a certain way. And here it's like, wow, I've just been given the space to name this thing that is like 
making my throat tight or mm. whatever. And am I safe in doing that in my workplace? And, yeah. you know, does that come up and, and how, how does that get worked out? Yeah, it, it comes up a lot, which is why that proactive piece is really important because it's not just about creating a position to say, hey, you can speak freely now. And now all of a sudden trust is uh, regained and, and rebuilt, right? We have to really assess where we are in our trust building dynamic before we can ask for repair or expect that I can repair a harm if there's been, you know, a breach in trust. So ways that I navigate that, um, a lot of times uh, team leaders will come to me to say, hey, you know, I have this issue on my team, whether it's team dynamics, power dynamics, oppression, right? Something happened or has been happening. What do I do? <laughs> and my first question is always, what are the people calling for? Because in restorative work, we all have to consent, right? Like I can't force a circle upon people or, you know, make people show up, right? Um, so depending on their response to what the people want, the people who are most directly impacted, then I ask about some of this trust building, right? Um, but the question is always really, where are we in our trust and how can we rebuild that? And what's the best way to rebuild that trust? I have this three-pronged approach to integrating restorative practices mm -hmm. systemically across all levels of the campus. And it starts with the proactive. And there's the other parts of the plan, which is education and responsive measures. Part of my role is to find ways to support people to not just express the issues, but also find resolution, yeah. find healing, find resolve, find repair that is directly connected to the harm, right? Like that's where the healing is. Like how can I really address the root cause of these issues and not just talk about them, right? So my role is to do that. And I won't say it's easy, right? Like everybody's just lined up telling me all of their feelings and stuff. But I am surprised that at a campus with so much institutional trauma and history of mistrust and issues around power, that so many people do trust me to say, hey, can, can I consult with you on this issue? Or um, can you come in to my team retreat or meeting and you know, help us to figure out this issue or even proactively to say, you know, we don't we don't have beef yet, but I want to make sure that we're engaging in some real authentic ways because I feel like we just kind of stick to the agenda and the status quo, but we could go deeper and that can make the our work together even more effective. So I'm really grateful for the support um, and trust that I've been afforded. And I don't take it for granted because there's so much happening and has happened on this campus. Um, so my, my role is really designed to, to hope to open people up and create more spaces outside of me that people can feel that support. Next to that is the education-based offerings, right? Like I am training the campus and 
the community around what restorative practices entail and restorative ways to respond to harm. I feel like I was hired to do the responsive stuff. And I was hired to help to build some infrastructure to get us to navigating that. Now, the road to do that is the proactive stuff, right? The community building, the trust building, so we can restore, you know, what's what we already have or what we had. We have something to come back to. Can you give some descriptions of cases that you've seen where things were able to get metabolized? One of the things that I really find impressive is when people talk about how they feel different. I think that that is more telling than policy and paper. I was working with a group indirectly where I had some consults. I knew about some team dynamics, some power dynamics, some tension where we don't even talk to each other. And I thought, all right, you have a retreat. I want to lead a session on team dynamics. But because of the nature of the conflicts, multiple conflicts, right? This isn't necessarily a space for me to come in and say, all right, let's process directly. Like, you know, how are you harmed, right? In fact, to be able to do that effectively, I would have to have some prep meetings with each of the players, right? To make sure we're all consenting and ready to process without re-traumatizing, you know, those who've been harmed. So because of the nature of the harms, I thought, let me lead this activity, this session. Let's spend an hour, hour and a half together just talking about our team dynamics because y'all don't know me like that. We don't necessarily have that trust built in where I can say, all right, now let's name these issues directly, right? But I can ask questions about your communication preferences. I can ask questions about how you respond to feedback and if you prefer direct feedback because indirectness does a disservice to the other person, or if you prefer indirect feedback because directness can be too easily seen as rude. Like I can have conversations and lead activities where people are processing those sentiments in, in small groups and pairs. So I did that. And then usually I walk away thinking, all right, we spent an hour and a half together we're not transformed yet, right? This is this is the appetizer, right? But then I got feedback shortly after. So in this group, I was talking to people and I saw people talking to people that don't talk to each other. And also as a result of these conversations where we started to unpack our collective and individual needs, our meetings look different. We changed these processes and these practices out of this conversation that we had. And I thought, well, I guess the appetizer can be nourishing after all. I don't come in and presume that an hour, an hour and a half is gonna change someone's life dramatically, right? But it is about creating space to allow for people to be more of themselves and name what they need and what they're experiencing. So if I can curate a space like that and then walk away 
and people can still maintain that space and still continue to feel like I have this newfound sense of advocacy for myself, then I feel like this is like the most effective way to do the work. All of that leads to the responsive stuff to make the responsive measures more effective. So a couple examples of that. I've mentioned that I do restorative coaching and uh, restorative consultations. That's where people come to me to say, hey, this thing happened in my classroom. This student said this thing that was problematic. And not only did that happen and harm other people in the class, including me, but also I didn't know what to do in the moment. So I went through business as usual. So now I have to be accountable to what I did, but also hope to find some healing in the classroom and some repair and uh, potentially some accountability and education for the student that caused the harm. So that's an example of some of the, the consultations that I'll help to lead people through. Another model that we've started at the college is uh, restorative listening circles. That's really an effective model for communities coming together when there's a generalized harm or concern across multiple communities or maybe a specific population or community, right? There's something happened, right, in the world or in our college, in our space. And we want a space to be able to process that in a helpful, curated way, right? I don't really believe in town halls. <laughs> They're not really effective in, in my opinion. Um, but an, an alternative to that, I would say, restorative listening circles. And that's a space where it's mostly small group work, where people come together in small groups, right? You can have 100 people, um, but we're breaking us up into small groups so that we can process how I'm feeling about this issue, what I'm thinking, what I think is helpful moving forward, what I can do to move forward, what healing I might need, um, what support can I offer others? Um, we do that, most of that work in small group, and we come together as a large group to process generally, you know, what's come up, what's helpful, what's, what's a good next step. That's a version of a circle process that is responsive in nature. And we did this once. We offered a, a restorative listening circle for affinity groups on campus to talk about solidarity building. When I was hired, where I started with the affinity groups from different communities on campus to just ask them, you know, what's, what's your experience? What are your needs? And the thing that just kept coming up is silos. So much of the conversation was about white supremacy culture and how we're pitted against each other. But when we come together outside of a traumatic experience, we can see that our issues are intertwined, right? So we can build solidarity across them. So I thought, let's have a listening circle where we can bring the affinity groups together to talk about solidarity building, what they've experienced, what they need moving forward, 
I would say I think we need a few more listening circles and other models to see transformative change across the board with all of our uh, affinity groups. But I will say that I have seen a difference in how the affinity groups will engage with me and restorative work. And I see them showing up. I will outreach to say, hey, we're hosting a, a restorative circle, you know, on this issue. And I would love to see you and your communities and your affinity groups, you know, come through. And they're there. You were talking about restorative work in a classroom where something happened in the classroom. The faculty person is coming to you and like, oh, wow, this happened. I want to create a space that's safer. How do I address this? In the moment, I was not able to do this, this, or this, but I did this, this, and this, you know. What are some ways that that gets sorted out? Hmm. That is a really good question. Inside the mind of Mitch, how does she lead these sessions? I generally start with the person who is coming to me and what their experience was. Because a lot of times they haven't unpacked enough or felt like they had space to unpack. So I'm like, hey, I'm glad you're here. Let's talk. What happened, right? I just want to know your experience first. Then from there, my mind always thinks power. (laughs) Where's the power situated? So then I'll think, who's impacted? How are they impacted? But I'll ask that person directly, especially if they're part of the group that caused the harm. I'll ask, you know, how has this affected you? And how do you think this is impacting others? That kind of self-reflection, self-awareness is really important. And then I'll ask, what do you think the people are calling for? What do you think the people who are impacted need? Um, What do you think would actually address this issue directly? Like, what are the main factors here that led to this issue? And if it's an issue with the person who caused the harm coming to me, then I'll do some processing of like, how did we get here? You know, is it, you know, your fear of conflict, making it so that you were afraid to challenge this racist comment? And where does that come from? And how do you use your agency in the class to uh, navigate that when it's needed? But also, how can you come back from it? We don't always have the right answers and the smooth thing to say in the moment, right? So I'm always affirming, like, you're here now. That's great. I appreciate that. So knowing that you can come back from that and how, right? So then we go back to rebuilding the trust, which is first understanding that not only did this racist comment happen and we got to deal with the material consequences of that, but also we have to deal with this breach of trust because as the leader in the space, people afford you a certain responsibility to, you know, curate a space, to set a tone. And when you miss the mark, you got to be accountable for that. Um, So I coach people to consider, how do I recover from that? And so much of that is taking the self-reflection that we have in our sessions and putting that out to the community and being transparent. You know, hey, I want to go back to this comment because 
at the time, I felt afraid and I didn't want to say the wrong thing. But then I realized that that was also wrong and that that impacted people. And this is what I'm committed to doing moving forward so that this doesn't happen again, but also that I can repair what's already happened. And I want to make space for people to process now in small groups or one-on-one or with me, right? There's different iterations of doing that, but that's kind of what a restorative coaching or consultation session could look like. Um, And sometimes it happens over multiple meetings to get us to a place where we need to be to feel like I have enough to be able to move forward in a situation or I have enough to be able to ask for another facilitator to come and help and support me in this role. The fear also being canceled and also, you know, where do you sit with that? Do you have some (laughs) things you might want to talk about with that? Yeah. Yeah. I got a couple things about it. So I always say my feedback is a gift. And if I am sharing feedback, especially to say, hey, I felt harmed by you in this way. That is a gift because in this council culture, I don't have to say anything and I can just write you off and feel great about my rest of my life, right? So when I'm talking to people who've caused harm and they know it, it's often because someone else said, you hurt me, this was wrong, right? And so I first take a moment to remind them that this feedback, this conflict is actually an invitation for us to go closer, to grow closer together. Because I measure my relationships not by, you know, who I can kick it with and have a potluck and have casual conversations with. Love that. But I measure the depth of my relationship by who can go the distance with navigating conflict with me. If I can share a meal with you, great. If I can share that you hurt me, I feel way closer to you. And not just that I feel confident enough to share that you hurt my feelings, but I feel confident enough to share that you hurt my feelings and trust that you're not going to put it back on me. That you're going to think about what you did or ask me questions about it from, from curiosity right? That you're going to want to work with me still, want to connect with me still, and be accountable to what you did. So in speaking about cancel culture, I let people know, don't be afraid of the conflict because you think you're going to get canceled. That's actually probably going to make you canceled because you're avoiding, I don't want to say the wrong thing, so I won't say nothing, you know, or you're so preoccupied with other people's responses to the stuff that you did, you're more preoccupied with other people's responses than the actual harm that you caused, right? So I'm like, wait a minute, let's, let's pivot here. What are we actually concerned about? Because all that other stuff is performative. You just wanna feel good, right? But when we're talking about restorative justice, we're talking about actually addressing the root cause of an issue. Not just making people feel better, 
you might feel worse because I'm calling you to the test. I'm asking you about your childhood traumas and how that led to you doing what you did now. You know, I'm asking how you've been socialized and conditioned as a professional at the college or, you know, as, you know, this person in this position or your cultural backgrounds. Like how how has that led to what we got going on and how much of that is serving you? How much of that is hurting you? How much of that is negatively affecting the other people that you're working with? And how do we want to change that? So that's my bit on cancel culture. There is also this, but good people don't have this happen to them. So could you speak a little bit to that as well? I actually have an infographic on accountability tools, um, and it's restorative responses to harms you've caused. And it's getting the community to really think about how can I hold myself accountable in ways that feel good and healing, right? That's not performative, right? That actually address the root cause of the issue. So what would I say to a person with those hangups? One of the things in the infographic is a section called do not, right? Most of the infographic, and it's like 11 by 17, it's huge. Most of the infographic is do this, right? Listen and make space, for example. But then there's, you know, a small section, an eighth, that's like, but do not. And we've heard the tropes. The biggest one is do not focus on your character, right? That's a part of white supremacy culture. I am a good person. I am educated. I do these things. I, I stood up in this march. So how could you believe that I don't support these people? Because my character, right? But it's not about your character. It's about what you did. And you could have read these books and still said this word that is inappropriate. And so part of the do section is consulting with allies who are not directly impacted to the harm so you can process your guilt. Because doing that with the people that you've harmed or those in close proximity is not the move. That's re-traumatizing. Also performative because it's more about you, right? But people that have caused harm and are struggling with that kind of accountability but want to hold themselves accountable, there's going to be a certain amount of guilt that we need to process, right? I'm included, right? I got to consult my people, right, to say, hey, like, I feel like crap about this, but can I talk to you so I can move through that so then I can do the right thing next time or figure out a way to pivot? I got to I got to talk to my people. And so I encourage people that are navigating issues around their character or issues around their guilt to process that in spaces that make sense to say, OK, white people come together with other white people to talk about how bad you feel about being white. But that's not the conversation for me to have with you, especially if I'm coming to you to say, hey, I feel harmed by you in this way. I think having space for processing your 
character and your guilt in, in other spaces and other affinity groups is, is helpful there. So much of my role, I feel, is normalizing conflict, right? Like, as people on the planet, when two or more gather, <laughs> conflict will happen, but we can find repair. We can find ways to prevent conflict, right? I can't say that my role will eradicate <laughs> right, conflict, but we can find ways to prevent where it makes sense with structural changes and trust building. To a certain extent, I'm normalizing conflict to say, this is actually an invitation for us to grow closer together, right? Now, by no means am I sort of normalizing harm and we should just walk around, you know what I mean? Willy nilly, let's, you know, hurt people, hurt people. It's just, you know, Mitch said on the air. No, <laughs> but there's so much work to be done in people's resistance to conflict in and of itself. Like they're not resistant to the fact that they hurt people. They're resistant to getting feedback that they hurt people. They're resistant to having their character questioned. And a lot of times that's internal, right? I didn't say you were a bad person. I say you hurt my feelings, right? But people have some internal work to do. So I do some of that work in my coaching as well and in my like restorative one-on-ones. Just to say, I think there's a lot of work to do when we can lean into that conflict and face it directly and speak to what actually caused it and how we can actually repair. I wanted to shout out one of our offerings. We call it Restorative Accountability Circle. And the purpose is for us to come together as a community to interrogate what restorative accountability means and what accountability means to us personally, individually. When I say, I need you to be held accountable, what am I talking about? And how does that connect to what restorative accountability means? What things can you find actual resolve in that address the issues directly, right? So it's a circle, it's a proactive circle that's not necessarily about this specific harm, like let's come together to talk about insert issue, right? But it's let's just come together to talk about one, what does accountability mean in a restorative sense? How do you know when it's been achieved? Were there other things around this accountability piece that you think would be really helpful to share for the people out there, you know, just kind of like bumping up against the usual, you know, uh, wash dishes, no wash dishes, <laughs> or, you know, whatever we say out there that just clumsily turns into a thing? I think in terms of accountability, I statements and impact statements are really helpful because it humanizes the conversation, right? I feel disregarded when you leave dishes in our sink because I got a lot going on. <laughs> and it seems like you're expecting me to do it. I don't want to assume that that's true, but that's what I feel. And I want to give you space to tell me if, if there's something different happening or at least to name where I'm at. That's an opportunity for us to come closer together. The other option is I could harbor resentment and never tell you about these dishes. And I don't think that serves me. 
And I don't think that serves you. And it definitely doesn't serve our relationship or dynamic. So sometimes I'm coaching people who were harmed to think, what is it that you need to feel supported and safe enough to be able to share where you're at? And what kind of structural interventions can I help with and support with to make it so that you actually have the freedom to share? And it's likely not just about you, right? We live in a society. So I often go back to team dynamics. What's in the water that makes it so that this comment could happen, that this thing could go unaddressed, that these dishes could stay in the sink, not by our choice, not by our collective choosing, but by one person's potential disregard for another. That was Michelle Strange, Director of Restorative Practices at Bellevue College. You can access links to some of the infographics that Strange described and more information about the program at kbcs.fm. For more KBCS stories and to support our work with a donation, you can visit kbcs.fm.